This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. This is the Strange New World Cornerstone U class. This is not the new members class. This is also not the crown class. So if you're here to learn more about the church or how not to spend yourself into oblivion, yeah, if, if that's what you're after, this isn't the room for you. Um, real quick, I'm going to introduce myself. Uh, some of you may not know me because I'm not up front maybe as much uh, as you want me to be. Just kidding. Um, it's God's mercy on you that you see me as little as possible. Um, all joking aside, uh, my name's Kevin Ship, one of the pastors here. Um, I have the privilege of serving Cornerstone bivocationally, so I work as an engineer during the day um, and then serve the church uh, with my time outside of, of that job. And what I want to do this morning is give you some biblical foundations upon which you can build and then proceed forward in the culture that we live in in order to engage it with the truth of God's Word and the gospel of Christ. So this week, this session is going to be all about how to think about engaging the culture around us. The last couple of weeks, you've learned about how our culture is increasingly coming to think about the world and reality, thinking about the human person, and ways in which the church can seek to resist the pull to go along with unbiblical and really harmful and unhelpful ways of thinking and living. What I want to do today is equip you uh, to engage the culture faithfully as a Christian and as a member of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching congregation. Um, Really, I'm not going to be saying anything complicated or new to you. In fact, I'm going to say a lot of things, hopefully, that are familiar to you if you've been around Cornerstone Church for any period of time. And I would submit that if somebody comes to you when thinking about how to engage the culture and says something completely new that you've never thought of or heard before, that might be dangerous. Um, so hopefully what I help you see today is familiar and maybe deepens an already existing set of convictions. Very simply, uh, I, I, what, what I would like to hold forth to you is this idea that in order to engage the culture faithfully, really what we're called to do is just be good, faithful Christians in front of people. That's really about it. So that's all I have for you. We're actually going to go into the lobby now and eat donuts. So thanks for coming. To some degree, that is true. In other words, there's nothing um, new or um, unique or amazing. You know, all the ways in which we're called to engage the culture may seem and feel ordinary and unimportant, but nothing could be further from the truth. The main point I want to drive home in our time together um, is this. In our Christian lives, the way in which we are called to engage the culture is to simply live as faithful disciples of Christ inside and outside the church. Carl Truman, um, the, the theologian and historian um, that we're really learning a lot from as part of this course, says this, the most powerful witness to the gospel is the church herself simply going about the business of worship. So we, as Christ's disciples, really will engage the culture most effectively 
as we simply go about being disciples of Christ. So what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a faithful disciple of Christ? My definition of a disciple is a, a disciple of Christ is someone who has encountered the risen Lord through the proclamation of the gospel, has turned away from their sins, and banked everything on him for life, salvation, and eternity. Or said even more simply, someone who has abandoned self and cast themselves on Christ, the Christ revealed to us in the scriptures. If we live as faithful disciples, we will be strangers and aliens in the world around us. It's interesting to note that um, as a disciple living in a post-Christian world, we are strangers and aliens. Before we each came to faith in Christ, we were strangers and aliens with respect to the people of God. In fact, Ephesians says this, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, after having come to faith in Christ and living in this increasingly secular or even pagan culture, we are now strangers and aliens with respect to the world that we once each conform to. But the good news is we are in good company as strangers and aliens. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews lays out this sort of list of faithful men and women of God and speaks of their faith and how that faith was demonstrated faithfully. In some instances, their faithful lives resulted in great victories and great triumphs. In others, their faithful lives resulted in great pain and agony. And we all in our faith in Christ, really live in the midst of their example and want to follow their example. But it says this about them, and if we live faithfully as disciples, this is true of us as well in this world. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth." So we should not be surprised then that increasingly our values are viewed as immoral or bigoted as the culture continually moves further away from Christian conviction. As an example, our opposition to the world's sexual ethics is going to be seen as bigoted. It's going to be seen as no different from racism of past eras. In other words, when the world sees what the Word of God teaches and how we think and live as Christians, we are going to be strangers and aliens to them. We will not make sense to them. A second feature of living as a faithful disciple in this world is that Christians really should demonstrate and live lives of deep humility. We should be characterized by humility. The nature of our salvation requires this. It demands this. We do not save ourselves. It's God and his kindness and his grace that accomplished everything for us to be his disciples, to be saved from sin. This is perhaps nowhere more clearly marked than in this um, passage of scripture in Luke where Christ is given a parable contrasting two men. 
It says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, which is an interesting statement, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Christ says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Disciples of Christ recognize that apart from God's work and God's hand working in their lives, we, there, there is no hope for us. Our only hope is Christ and what he's accomplished. What this tax collector understood is that his sin against God is more serious than any other sin um, that he is aware of. We, as God's disciples, are meant to be more aware of and grieved more by our own sin than the sins of others. Of course, we lament the sins around us, and we should be grieved by the sin that we see around us, but we never move on from being more aware of our own need for God. And we never stand in self-righteous judgment of others. But if there is to be any grief as we look at our culture, let's let that grief be due to the myriad ways God's goodness is being denied to people. God's glory is being obscured. And how people are, are, are literally being shut out from experiencing the presence of God because of a culture that would blind them to the glory of God. And if there's any angst within us, let's let it spring forth for a zeal to get others in on this grace of God that we ourselves have experienced because of Christ. Let's not um, give ourselves over to this desire merely to be uh, seen as right or to occupy a place of power in the culture. We want to bring an appeal for everyone to trust in Christ and be delivered and experience this joy. And this is, this is demonstrated um, chiefly through the humility that the gospel brings to our lives. Also, Christians are called, disciples of Christ are called to, to have a deep and robust theology, an understanding of God and who he is. We are those people who really live by each word that comes from the mouth of God. We are called to center our lives on his word, and to center our lives on what he is, has done for us. If we are going to be effective witnesses to Christ in the culture, we are going to have to be grounded deeply um, in his word. We are going to have to be grounded theologically. A theologian once described this as thinking God's thoughts after him as we strive to understand him and obey his word. This means that we must remain faithful to the gospel message. We have to be willing to call sin, sin, and do that starting with ourselves. When we don't tell the truth about sin, when we don't call sin, sin, we make the gospel message confusing. We obscure it, 
And we may end up shutting people out from the kingdom of God. In other words, we can't tell people peace, peace when there is no peace. We must call people to experience the peace of God through Christ. And the fact is, none of us are going to remain faithful disciples apart from a commitment to the local church. So the second thing we're called to as faithful disciples is to live as faithful disciples inside the local church. Acts chapter 2 says this, and, and I cannot wait until we um, get to see this passage and, and think about this passage together as a church in the weeks ahead as we study the book of Acts. But it says this in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is sort of this compact statement or um, description of what life in the early church was like. And really what we see throughout the pages of the New Testament is church after church after church in city after city after city being established and the Christians in those churches in those cities are basically doing this exact same thing and they're doing it over and over and over again. In fact, as you um, survey the New Testament, this is what we're called to do. This is what the church does, is they build churches. And a central aspect of these churches is the community of the believers. Community was central to the early church. The Christians cared for one another and served one another. They shared their lives together. Carl Truman says this, Christian identity was clearly a very practical, down-to-earth, and day-to-day -day thing. What we see in the pages of the New Testament is a very strong doctrine of the church. The local church was meant to be central to the life of the Christian. For the vast majority of Christians, participation in the life and ministry of the local church will be their primary means of reaching the world around them. I want to say that again. For the vast majority of Christians... Your participation in the life and ministry of the local church will be your primary means of reaching the world around you. The Christian that is called to have a public, prominent influence in the culture is usually an extraordinary exception, not the norm. Now, looking in this room, maybe there's one or two of you that will be called to that and will be gifted in such a way to, to, to function in a role like that. But I know most of you, and most of you are probably not going to be that person. Um, but I think this is, is important for us to grasp, and, and the importance of this cannot be understated. Truman says, The strongest identities I have, forming my strongest intuitions, derive from the strongest communities to which I belong. And that means that the church needs to be the strongest community to which we each belong. 
Truman further encourages Christians. He says, become a community. By this the Lord says, shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love you have for each other. And that means community. True Christian community involves love in action. It is genuine love that is demonstrated. Not mere sentiment or warm feelings when you think about Christians in general or Christian things in general, but it's meant to be tangible expressions of love for actual real brothers and sisters who are directly in front of you. It involves living out or demonstrating the many expressions of love we see outlined in 1 Corinthians 13. So in other words, it's not just thinking that those are good ideas, but actually living in that way with other believers and with even those outside the church. This also means walking in all the one another's that are laid out for us um, throughout the New Testament. So to review some of these, we're called as Christians inside the church to love one another with brotherly affection. To outdo one another in showing honor. How weird is that compared to our culture, which largely seeks to secure honor for yourself? We're to be those people that try to give honor and show honor to others. We're supposed to compete. Like, we're supposed to do it in such a way that, like, we're not satisfied until we're the best at honoring people. That should be the way we live with one another. We're to live in harmony with one another, comfort one another, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. Perhaps this is the most anti-cultural thing that can be expressed is for somebody to sin or do something wrong or to offend somebody and reconciliation to happen because true forgiveness happens. We live in a culture that is almost impossible to live up to the moral standard, and there is no forgiveness. If you transgress the culture's standards, that's it. You're done. You're out. You're canceled. You're condemned. In other words, we live in a culture of great self-righteousness, but the church is to be a place where forgiveness is freely extended because forgiveness has been freely given. And... We're a place where righteousness comes because of the work of another, not because we can perfectly live up to any standard. We come together to worship God together. We pray for one another. We carry one another's burdens. In other words, we don't give up on each other just because it gets hard. We encourage one another. We build one another up. We confess our sins to one another. This is the community that the church is intended to be. And I don't know how you think or feel after reading a list like that, but that's enough to fill a lifetime right there, is doing that and doing that faithfully inside the church. The church is also called to be the place where God is worshipped and where worship to God is given. Truman says, gathering together on the Lord's day, like we're just about to do this morning, praying, singing God's praises, hearing the word read and preached, celebrating baptism in the Lord's Supper, giving materially to the church's work. These are the things all Christians should do when gathered together. It might sound trite, but a large part of the church's witness to the world is simply being the church in worship. The most powerful witness to the gospel is the church herself simply going about the business of worship. I want to take a second and, and um, pull away and, and 
and cast a vision for you. What we are called to as disciples of Christ is, just, is not just preaching a message of salvation and getting people to make a decision. And it certainly isn't just trying to get the world to be a little bit more moral, biblically speaking. It is way more than that. We are calling people to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ and then to live a radically new and different life. And that radically new and different life is not possible apart from the ministry of the church. And it really is within the life of the church that Christian disciples are made um, and that people are able to walk out obedience to Christ. And there is almost no better validation for the truth of our message of, of salvation than when people come into this gathering and they see the presence of God in our worship. So I want everyone to have this category that us giving ourselves as faithful Christians to this Lord's Day worship and, and inviting those outside the church in is a significant way we engage the culture and the world around us. Truman says this, the culture is most dramatically engaged by the church, presenting it with another culture, another form of community that's rooted in her liturgical worship practices and manifested in the loving community that exists both in and beyond the worship service. The church protests the wider culture by offering a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Similar to what Eric preached on last week, and I highly recommend going back and re-listening to his message and studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Giving ourselves to Christian worship, fellowship, and community is what we do because of who we are in Christ, but it is more than that. God will make his appeal to a lost world around us through the disciples he saves and the churches that he builds us into. Another aspect of the church um, and being a faithful disciple within the church is the teaching of the church. The church is entrusted with the gospel. We have as his people in the church the very words of life that have been brought to us by Christ himself. They are transferred down to us through the apostles and preserved for us in the passages and pages of scripture. And the church is called to preach the whole counsel of God. The Word of God reveals to us the mind and heart of God. It teaches us reality. It, it shows us the world as it actually is. The Word teaches us what it means to be human and to be created in the image of God. It reveals the very purposes of creation. It reveals what went wrong and how it's all going to be put right again. The Word of God reveals to us what marriage is what sex is really for, and how to experience the true joy of both. It shows how God is working in everything to move all of creation back to the purpose for which he created it. That is the glory of his name. The church is also called to guard this deposit of doctrine and to transfer it to every member through teaching and preaching so that we all know God's word and that we all think God's thoughts after him. 
Truman says it this way, we can stand strong at this cultural moment and address the specific challenges we face only if our foundations in God's truth are broad and deep. This means that the chaotic nature of our times is no excuse for abandoning the church's task of teaching her people the whole counsel of God. And we each have been recipients um, and, and greatly blessed because we um, in Cornerstone have been faithfully taught by many over the years. It's going to be through this teaching and instruction that the saints are equipped for ministry inside and outside the church. So uh, a few thoughts about living as faithful disciples outside the church. So of course, meaningful involvement in a local church is going to the base from which we each embark on any kind of specific engagement as an individual believer out in the culture. In other words, membership in and, and faithful participation in the local church functions as like the prerequisite or the foundation upon which to build out specific engagements. In other words, many people today seek to engage the culture or their neighbors apart from or without the support of a local church. To do this is really to be inconsistent with the testimony of the New Testament. It is also inconsistent with what we see throughout the ancient church. If we seek to reach the culture, but we ourselves are not being knit into and built up by the local church, we are inevitably going to lead people into something less than what God intends for them. We're not going to be drawing them into a community of faith if they hear our words and receive the gospel message. This also means that your witness can be weakened. The life of the church, as we just discussed, is really meant to be uh, a means of validating the truth of our message. In other words, we don't just teach information to somebody. We, te we teach and preach the gospel, and then the, the effects of that gospel message and the presence of God, the very presence of God, is demonstrated in the life and ministry of the church. Seeking to engage the culture without this connection to the church will also leave you vulnerable to engage in cultural warfare using the culture's tools and weapons. Truman says this, I am suggesting rather that engaging in cultural warfare using the world's tools, rhetoric, and weapons is not the way for God's people. One of the ways that we can see this is that we may put too much hope in a political party. We may put too much hope in the outcome of an election or a, a series of protests. We may also find that we begin engaging in sin and compromise as a believer, thinking that the end justifies the means. In other words, our culture th thinks that only causes, goals, or desired outcomes matter, and how we achieve those goals doesn't matter. In other words, it's an any means possible um, approach to reaching our desired end. This way of thinking and living really is the pathway to hatred and violence. And finally, seeking to engage the culture disconnected from the church may leave you vulnerable to losing sight of the real goal. Of course, we want things that are not right in the world and in the culture to be put right. We want human beings to have safe, healthy lives. We want human beings to flourish. But ultimately, as a disciple of Christ, we want to glorify God by proclaiming Christ and calling men and women to trust in him. 
We cannot lose sight of that as the ultimate goal. Of course, working for good causes in this life is worthwhile. Many of us will have opportunities to serve others and to bring about changes in the world. But if, but however, if we do that and, and we shut people out along the way from hearing the gospel of Christ, we have not been a faithful disciple. So a few words about engaging the culture um, outside the church. Um, Carl Truman reminds us of this category of natural law. Truman says this, he says, the church needs to recover natural law in a theology of the body. Natural law is the idea that the world in which we live is not simply morally indifferent stuff, but possesses in itself a moral structure. Human beings, human bodies are made to flourish in some ways and not others. He gives some rather um, funny examples of this. In other words, I am not designed to flourish by jumping off a skyscraper. I am not designed to flourish by swimming down a thousand feet into the bottom of the ocean. My body will not support that. There's some basic ways in which we are designed to function and to flourish. Truman also says male and female bodies are made to fit together sexually in certain ways and not in others. Almost everyone is born with a body that types them at birth as male or female, and for good reason. Those bodies have different capacities and perform certain different functions. In each case, we can say that nature or the natural law points to the boundaries of what is and is not behavior that will lead to human beings flourishing. So nature is not just stuff we're meant to overcome or mold and shape to our liking. Our bodies aren't just dirt, even though we were made from dirt. They're not just dirt, and what we do with them and with them um, and in them matters. Truman says this, it is, not nature, it is not that nature here offers the decisive arguments, yet it does help show that biblical teaching is not an arbitrary imposition on nature, but instead correlates with it. In other words, it assists us in showing that God's commands make sense given the way the world actually is. It shouldn't surprise us that God's revelation in nature jives with his special revelation in Scripture. And we can demonstrate that to the world around us. It is on the basis of natural law that we as Christians can engage the culture and world around us in context that will not accommodate an explicitly Christian teaching. It's also on this basis of natural law that we, we can, as individuals, coalition with others for worldly causes. And I, I say that in quotes. What I mean by that is in things like politics, community service, socioeconomic development, and the like. But here's the danger. We need to be discerning with whom we coalition. Over time... If you participate in a given coalition, you could find that there are certain elements within that coalition that move everyone in a decidedly harmful or unhelpful direction. So I, I would caution everyone um, in their associations and in these coalitions that we might build, but let's seek to build coalitions in causes where human flourishing um, based on natural law can be progressed. Another way in which we can engage the culture outside the church is through hospitality. We, we as Christians want to live in such a way with those outside the church, so think in your community and the culture at large, 
that they experience a small taste of the grace and mercy of God that we experience through our right relationship with Christ. We want them to experience love and care and safety like they've never experienced before. We want to welcome them in just like we have been welcomed by Christ. Practically speaking, this can be most um, effectively done by extending hospitality, that is inviting others into your home and into your life and simply treating them right. In other words, not mistreating them like may be the norm in their lives outside in the culture. Hebrews 13, 1 through 2 says it this way. It calls us as Christians to let brotherly love continue, really speaking to the love we have as believers together. And then it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In other words, it should be the norm for Christians to extend hospitality to those who would be strangers to us from outside the church. And here's something that's interesting, and and everybody in this room has experienced this, but there is something special about sharing a meal with someone. When we sit down, um, we invite people into our home, and we sit down to a meal, and we serve a meal to them, it communicates a genuine desire um, for care, a genuine desire to be intimate with that person. It gives people rest and refreshment. Um, You may be giving that physically, even though our ultimate goal is that they would experience rest and refreshment in their souls through faith in Christ. But we can give them that experience physically um, and draw them, that is, attract them to the Christ that has saved us. When we invite somebody into our homes and to a meal, we say to them, you're in. In other words, I'm willing to take you as you are and show you love and care and demonstrate to you um, love and care that isn't based upon your performance. Revelation 19.9 speaks of the wedding supper of the Lamb. It says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. It's not random or insignificant that God has used this imagery of marriage and this imagery of this marriage supper as speaking about our fellowship with God and our fellowship together as his people with him. And we can give even unbelievers a small taste of what that is like by the way that we invite them into our homes and into our lives. And, and the, the worship song that we sing on a periodic basis rang in my ears as I considered this idea of extending hospitality. We as Christians have been welcomed into God's family Once we were his enemies, and now we're seated at his table. Um, And we want to give even unbelievers a taste of what that can be like in the way that they experience our love and care to them. So finally, I want to conclude uh, with a vision. A vision of how we can walk out into this world as God's disciples, as disciples of Christ, and really engage with the culture and invite them in on this great grace that we have received. We want to do that not with naive optimism and not with discouraging despair, but with Christian realism. 
Truman says this, this is not a time for hopeless despair nor naive optimism. Yes, let us lament the ravages of the fall as they play out in, in the distinct ways that our generation has chosen. But let that lamentation be the context for sharpening our identity as people of God and our hunger for the great consummation that awaits at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And let's, as his disciples, put before the culture and a world that is perishing a compelling life in witness to the gospel. Let's live as joyful, blood-bought children of God in the church and in front of the world around us. Let's demonstrate the blessings and joys of being conformed back into the image of Christ. Let's be light in the darkness, hope in the midst of complaint, joyful in despair, resilient in a quit culture, kind to our enemies, blessing those who persecute us. Let's get along with everyone so far as it depends upon us. Let's seek to be excellent in a world that's happy to just get by. Let's be loyal and dedicated friends and neighbors. Let's be faithful and true even when others are not. There is this vision of life and leadership um, that's embodied in a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from the horse and his boy, speaking of a king. It says, For this is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, let's laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. This is put more simply by a contemporary writer, Joe Rigney. He says this, First in, last out, laughing loudest. And in a similarly succinct statement, as we think about engaging the culture beyond, um, beyond the church, let's seek to live as faithful disciples of Christ inside and outside the church. And let's leave it up to the providential hand of God for the effect and the impact that that has. What we learn from the pages of Scripture is as the church goes about its business of being faithful to its call, to some we're going to be the aroma to life, and to some we're going to be the aroma to death. And that is all left in the hands of the Lord. Our job, our call is to live faithfully and then leave the impact and the influence in the Lord's hands. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to be faithful disciples that you would let us, lead us to do this well inside the church. And today, as we think about this, especially help us do this faithfully outside the church. We pray that we would be a city on a hill, that we would be salt and light. And I pray for those, though they may be few in this room, who are called to being a prominent public um, influence in the culture, that you would root them deeply in your word, that you would fill them with courage, that you would fill them with humility, that you would help them to be discerning, help them to be wise and discerning in this world, and that you would bless um, their work and their efforts. And I pray for all of these present and for our church that we would be a faithful witness to Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.